When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Thursday, August 26, 2021. I'm Ash Bennington, joined shortly by Real Vision's Weston Nakamura and Peter Pinkasov. It's a difficult day in markets, indeed a difficult day for the country. Markets rattled by a blast in Kabul, Afghanistan. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But first, looking at the closing numbers on the day, uh, Dow Jones Industrial Average off about half a percent, uh, S&P off about half a percent, settling at 4000 469. NASDAQ uh, off 0.64%. It's below 15,000. Looks like closing out the day as markets settle here at 14,945. Finally, Russell 2000, biggest loser of those four indices, up off over 1%, closing out the day at 2,215. Uh, as I alluded to earlier, markets appear to have been rattled by a bombing in Kabul, Afghanistan. Uh, the attack took place at Hamid Karzai International Airport in Kabul today. Uh, the attack killed dozens and injured over 100, according to Afghan sources on the ground, including a dozen U.S. service members. Pentagon sources call it a complex attack that included multiple explosions, at least two. In additional news, uh, as we try and uh, see through these uh, terrible events here today uh, and look a bit into the future, all eyes toward Jackson Hole, Wyoming, the Jackson Hole Economic Symposium sponsored by the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City begins tomorrow at 9 a.m. It's being held virtually this year due, of course, to COVID-19. Expect the focus to be on the questions we've been discussing here at Real Vision, specifically questions of inflation, transitory or durable, and of course, the policy response, the timing and magnitude of the taper. That said, gentlemen, let's turn toward Weston and Peter. Welcome. Thank you very much. Yeah, Thanks obviously. Yeah, obviously a difficult day, a somber day here today. Uh, Weston, tell us what you're looking at. Yeah, um, these are always you know difficult days because you know you're not trying to be callous or anything, but at the end of the day, um, you know I'm just trying to look purely objectively at markets. Um, so from a markets um, standpoint, um, yeah, it was. I mean, it was an, it was I guess sort of interesting that. Um, the news was not, it's not like this, I mean, it's still going on as we speak. So it's not like a one-time sort of shock and you get like an algo, you know, like a overdrive and then reversal. It just keeps dripping out. And so, I mean, we can close uh, 2% up tomorrow or 2% down to, or open 2% up or, or down tomorrow. Um, it's still very much uh, an early story. I'll also say too that because of the, um, the, um, Jackson Hole, uh, Fed Powell, uh, Chairman Powell's speech, whatever is happening in markets right now is not the response. 
the response is going to come after the full response to these events today will be wrapped in alongside with what may come or may not come from uh, from Chairman Powell. And we don't know how much of it is going to be wrapped in, but you know, most people will probably attribute, if there's a market move after Chairman Powell speaks, they're going to attribute all of it to the Fed and not necessarily to thinking about like uh, residual effects that people are holding off for now in reaction to this, you know, to wait for the uh, chairman to speak. So just something to keep in mind. Yeah, an important framework. Peter, jump in. Give us your thoughts. What are you looking at today? Well, I think what Weston just said um, on the surface might sound really simple, but if you take it to the next level, I think what you're alluding to, Weston, is the idea that fiscal policy might not take you know, first stance from a policy perspective, and things might get shifted around a little bit. And in a time where growth is kind of slowing, you're kind of setting a stage for, I don't know, left tail skew, so to say. I'm not one of those people who you know, was looking for a crash all the time. You know, stocks usually go up. But the thing is, like, you're in a kind of a perfect storm environment, I think. Like, consumer sentiment is dropping. Um, you know, inflation is starting to come off a little bit, at least. Growth looks like it's sort of stabilized in the medium term. And on top of that, you know, talking about, you know, Jackson Hole, you got a, you had a completely dovish Fed last year, and this year they're talking about tapering. It's just the complete opposite. So it's going to be an interesting response, and I think Weston is is perfectly right to call out some of these things. What does that mean, Peter? You're a, you're an active trader. You're a daily trader. Tell us what does it mean uh, when you see those reversals, very sharp reversals. Typically, uh, historically, at least, we think of monetary policy as something that plays out on a longer time frame. Uh, Rao famously says. Uh, Rao Powell, our founder and CEO, uh, for those new viewers who have just joined us. Rao often says that uh, macro is a monthly uh, time horizon. Things moving very quickly, though. Yeah, things things are moving quickly. I think you could probably take a look at what happened. I can't remember the year exactly. Was it 2013, the taper tantrum? Um, if that's right, that then th I think that might be a good proxy for gauging what could happen in this kind of risk environment. The thing about 2013 was I think you had European, uh, Europe start to slow down. It was around the time post-European uh, crisis as well. Um, things weren't it, was, it wasn't you know smooth sailing as it was today back then, or should I say pre-COVID. Um, so well, let's that just could, jump in for people yeah. who weren't in markets in 2013 and tell them what the taper tantrum was. Uh, taper tantrum was a rapid uh, shift upward in bond yields, meaning yields rose dramatically, prices fell on news uh, that the Fed was going to begin to withdraw liquidity, withdraw accommodation from markets. Go ahead, Peter. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that basically, given the post-2009 response to the great financial crisis, scared the bejesus out of markets, and you had a little bit of a risk-off trade. Now, the magnitude of that might not be met, but there's still that open window, I think, that you have, given basically you know, the, kind of the, the, cloud, the clouds above our heads right now. Yeah, Weston, jump in. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, first of all, I I don't like I, I refuse to believe this um, this notion of the um, you know especially people trading this week into Jackson Hole. Well, who who is who is mo moving capital in either direction? Uh, you know, ahead of this right now, like what, what did they did they find something out yesterday to speculate about what's going to come out of the chairman's mouth? You know, tomorrow, like so. So, what you know, the the moves that you see, and especially because it's August, you know, volumes are light. 
um, and all that. And so um, it's like I it's very much like a no, like a noisy, noiseless market. Um, and uh, I don't really take into account too much um, the price action um, and read too deeply into it. Um, but I will, you know, uh, what I will say though is last week um, when we had, you know, the VIX shoot up and all that kind of thing. Um, this is Peter and I were, um, you know, had this view that this would happen. Um, when that happened, when that happened, I had kind of, um, I started to, I've been thinking of this theory in which um, capital is essentially going to be flowing into the United States from overseas markets. So this has been happening all year. So it's been happening first out of Japan, Japan like Nikkei's flat. Um, on the year, it's been a horrible market, um, and now you know, and then China, of course, and then I think that what's uh, the market that's next is going to be Europe. You're going to see uh, European um, asset managers take profits. Europe's been very strong, um, and ultimately move begrudgingly into the United States. And then you kind of saw that that like price action, um, you know, last week. And then I was watching it today too, and you kind of saw it uh, today too, where when you see. Um, the European cash markets close, which is like around 11 a.m. Eastern. Um, the dynamic of the market of, of like E-minis, for example, kind of changes um, thereafter. Um, so there's definitely a lot of heavy, heavy like European influence right now in um, in U.S. markets in equity markets. And so it's kind of like you know, if you want to look into it, you have to look into it through the perspective of a European asset manager. That's a very what does that What does that mean to you, Weston? What is that perspective? What does it betoken, uh, and and how does that change the likely future trajectory of markets? In your view, I think that it gets very interesting. So right now, um, for once uh, in a, I call it a decade, we're actually starting to see. I'm not saying that I'm not saying fundamentals, but we're starting to see at the index level, regional, um, you know. Uh, you know, bifurcations or whatever they may be. You know, you're starting to see like not it's not an entire world global DM risk on equity markets are all green or or all not right. So last Wednesday you had the CAC 40 was down over three percent. You know, all of Europe was down, Asia was down um, on this VIX spike, and then later that day you saw SPX peaking into the green. Usually that would mean SPX is also going to be down two percent, along with the DAX, along with you know Euro stocks, um, FTSE, uh, the Nikkei, the Kospi, and you know, and so on and so forth. But that's not really the case now. And and then today, you know, you're starting to see. I mean, this is all developing stories, but you're seeing a different response from President Macron versus Chancellor Merkel, um, and you know, versus uh, the Biden administration and. So I think that Europe might start to actually not trade as a single block either. Um, I'm not saying based on this, yeah. but I'm saying that you know, as as things kind of, I think markets are going to start to to reflect uh, divergent sort of policies, um, elected leaders, and and just general sentiment um, to respective things like COVID and and economics and. Yeah, it's interesting. The argument probably goes that what we're seeing today in price action, and I'm saying not saying I agree or disagree with it, but what we're seeing in price action today uh, is this repricing uh, of global geopolitical risk. Yeah, you know, the Weston, to your point, if you're a portfolio manager on the equity side and you're waiting everything to beta and you're just confused why half your names aren't working, well, it's probably because that half that isn't working is just a yield curve play, right? It's all tied to growth, and you're seeing that across different countries as well. If you're weighing everything to a single index, it's either stuff that's going up because it's tech, or it's stuff that's in the growth basket and is basically trading around you know, a, a treasury. 
Hey, Peter, to that point, I'm curious what you think of the narrow breadth that we've seen uh, in terms of the gains over the last few months. Yeah, I think uh, pick. You know, this is something we we talk about. I mean, I, I bring it up all the time because it's just like what's going on right now, right? It's it's the main thing I think for a lot of equity focused uh, PMs. It's this uh, idea: our growth stocks going to come back up, and a lot of the bad breath um, metrics are probably more driven by you know those small caps things that were really beaten down because growth looks like it was going to decelerate. It's so complicated right now, you know, uh, on the essential tier. I have, uh, I interview Samuel Rines next week, and we talk about this specific issue about why bonds might be the most difficult asset class in the world right now because you've got about six different things pulling on the arms and the legs of the bonds, and it's hard to find out which one is going to be the victor in that regard. I think a lot of people are probably positioned for, you know, the, I don't want to say the easy play, but the most optimistic play is that you get a surge in recovery. And uh, bond yields start to shoot up, but hey, they can, that could still happen, and growth can still be meandering, and you can have falling yields in a high inflation environment. It's just it's it's a very difficult thing. So to your question, it, it's been very difficult. Breath has picked up over the last couple weeks or so. You saw a nice bounce in some of those reopening names like LVS, Carnival, uh, a lot of the beaten down stuff, and finally uh, some kind of a pop in China as well. Um, that might look like a dead cat bounce. I'll leave that to Weston because he's the he's the pro China trader here. But um, yeah, uh, I, I think it's it's very interesting. Something to keep in mind as well. And it's and, and if you're watching it closely, it's definitely been that breath correlation has been tied to where the treasury is trading, which makes sense. You know, is, is growth accelerating or decelerating? And the treasury is that proxy right now. Yeah, I mean the other question here, the other open issue that we still are dealing with, of course, is coronavirus. Uh, I know um, that uh, you know Weston's in Tokyo. Of course, you are in some bucolic northeastern paradise. I'm not exactly sure where, Peter, but here in New York, undisclosed, undisclosed location. Here in New York City, we've seen uh, an increase in uh, lockdowns. You know, the doorman yells at you in my building if you're not uh, wearing a mask at all times. This was something that uh, the the sign on the wall, like it feels like it changes weekly. Uh, you know, masks required for everyone. Masks not required. Uh, if you're fully vaccinated, then masks required to uh, for all uh, people who are visiting or living in the building. This is just the day-to-day reality for people who are living in New York City. Suddenly, far more masks on the street, masks in restaurants, masks in stores. Uh, how do we price that? How do we think about that? And what does it do ultimately uh, to the extraordinary fiscal and monetary accommodative policy we have seen? Does that begin to get withdrawn? Yeah, you you know the Spanish flu is still around. If you think about it, you know we we still have that on a daily basis, not on a daily basis, but we still have a seasonal flu that's that's tied to those original traces. And you know the markets are definitely still higher than it was in 1918. So that that what tells me what that tells me is that you know not to use the word anti fragile markets do kind of price stuff in over time. But I think you're really rightfully so to to point that out that it's not going anywhere, but maybe because of how well we dealt with it over the last year and a half um, on any sort of new variant, um, we might be able to price it a little bit better this time. And it might not be, you know, minus 40% decline. It could be a 20% shock. Just something to think about. Yeah. Weston, thoughts? Yeah. I just wanted to make a quick point on uh, market breadth that um, that Peter was talking about. So, um, Craig Peterson is um, he's an individual um, in on the exchange. He's pretty um, active on the exchange, and he he makes like really clever charts. Really smart guy. Um, so he he has a company um, that 
he uh, started with um, a buddy of his called Tier 1 Alpha. And basically, he started something called an embed indicator, which I use every day. Um, a couple of the people on Exchange do. I suggest everyone take a look at it. Um, it's on the Real Vision Twitter um, from earlier today, too. Uh, MBAD, it's mar uh, Market uh, Breadth Advanced Decline Indicator. And it basically gives you a snapshot, like real time, of what's happening in terms of sectors, what the um, sort of distribution is. And so, like a day like today, you can take a look at what it was, you know, before these attacks, after. But so for today, like you know, it doesn't look like the markets. You know, markets down what like like point point six percent or something, right? Um, but you know, looking at it right now, and it looks like for every four stock, for every one stock that ended green, there's four that were losers today. Um, that, right. I mean, that doesn't, you know, if you're just looking at just SPX, it, that, that's not that's not the same story, right? Um, and it's under the hood, it looks a lot worse. And furthermore, when you when you take a look, you know, even deeper, um, you know, it'll you'll see that like the average decline for the decliners was down, you know, one and a, one and a quarter percent, whereas the average uh, uh, gains for those that you know uh, did gain, it was only like 62 basis points. So basically, you have more numbers of uh, more quantity of constituents down and that are down further than the minority of winners that are up and by how much they are up. So it's really not that like, you know, uh, resilient of a market from from that sort of perspective. So um, yeah, S&P looks like it's settled here on the day uh, 44, 4,470 even uh, off 0.58 percent on the day or yeah. off 26, uh, about 26 points. And then, and then when you, um, you know, I mean, I don't, I'm going to contradict myself and, you know, say like, you know, not to look, read too deeply into it, but if you kind of look um, at price action from like a tick for tick basis, um, the reaction was um, basically if you invert VIX, right? So it went VIX, then the S&P um, just by a hair, but then you, then you see um, treasury yields move. So treasuries were actually trailing by, you know, I mean, just like a minute or so, uh, but they were de definitely trailing the equity market. Now you had a seven-year auction um, as well, um, you know, coming later that afternoon. But nonetheless, um, it looks like the treasury market's just really kind of reluctant to do anything, probably ahead of, uh, you know, not not trying to make any big moves ahead of either the auction or uh, Fed Powell, uh, Chairman Powell tomorrow. Um, but yeah, it's it's it's. It's strange to see the the uh, treasury market kind of lag behind um, and or move begrudgingly towards whatever equities are doing. Yeah, very well said, um, Peter. I know you've been looking at some things on the blockchain and sports front. Curious to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, I um, this is an older article, but I saw that the New York Mets finally, or um, I should say, an, a U.S. sports organization finally picked up a blockchain platform for NFTs. I think it's a big deal, and I think it's a big deal, especially for a blockchain technology that hasn't been talked about in a while. And it's I think it's left a lot of investors' minds, and that's Tezos. Uh, Tezos has been building a ton of, and let me just say full disclosure, I, I have Tezos, and I, I think it, you know I'm pretty optimistic on it just because of the growth that I've seen. You own, you own it right now. Correct, yes. And I've just seen a lot of partnerships that they've been doing uh, on the NFT front, specifically uh, on the growth side with uh, McLaren Racing. They have Red Bull Racing on there, if anyone is into Formula One. They have a couple of Premier League teams as well. It's finally gotten into the U.S. through uh, Steve Cohen. And if you read the article, I think you'll see that Steve Cohen is 
quite optimistic on blockchain and thinks it's early days on that front. It's it's a, it's a it's a cool article to read. I think I'm going to make sure that we might get it retweeted or something, but I'll share it on my Twitter as well if, if you're interested. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a big deal because if it gets into MLB, there's a chance that it goes to other teams. If it goes to other teams, there's, there's a pretty good chance that it goes into other platforms, NFL, NBA. The trading card market, uh, just a sports card market, I think it's like a billion dollar market, right? Which is just that alone would be, I think, one third of just Tezos' current. I hate using the word market cap, but market cap of Tezos right now. And if you look at Tezos on a ranking chart of its market cap, it's actually one thirtieth of Cardano's or Cardano's ADAs, and they don't even have smart contracts yet. So it's it's a very interesting. I think it's a pretty interesting risk reward play, um, just from a pure relative comparison and growth basis. Yeah, Tezos, of course, for those who are looking at crypto in 2017, was, I believe, the first ICO over $200 million. Correct, yeah. And it, at the time, I think that there were, I don't I don't remember exactly what happened. I need to do a little bit more due diligence on that front. But I know that there was some, something happened with that, that ICO. And I, I think you're not even allowed to trade Tezos in the New York City area. You're, you're prevented from doing it on uh, Coinbase, for example. So um, again, I think you should. Everyone should just do your own research, of course. Um, but it, it looks interesting to me. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, it's like it's it's geofenced, and uh, it's, so you don't have access to it. Um, yeah. By the way, talking of these new technologies, one of the things that is really in- interesting to me that I've been looking into since I actually saw Raul talking about it uh, has been the European Union emissions trading system, this cap and trade system uh, that we have in place uh, in Europe right now, uh, where emissions uh, can be traded. Uh, it's an interesting market. Raul was ahead of the curve on that, as he has been on so many other things. Interesting piece today. Uh, on Real Vision, uh, featuring uh, Liz Simi and Wes Gray uh, talking about this, but from a kind of a a slightly cynical perspective, trying to understand what the nuances are, what the complexities are uh, when people are talking about this sort of utopian society that we're going to have, where we're just going to be able to trade, uh, you know, we're going to be able to trade the emissions on every sort of ember of coal in the world uh, and price that effectively. They're talking about exactly this issue uh, in a clip uh, from a show called uh, An Unfiltered Contrarian Take on the ESG industry. Let's take a look. One of the terms that um, you brought up, and I did a little bit of research on it, and that's this idea of greenwashing or basically faking it. Um, Can can you explain what greenwashing is, why people should care, and and different examples of of, uh, you see this in the marketplace? Yeah. Greenwashing um, is the term that the end customer uses, whether they're an institution or advisor, to, to to call out an ESG strategy or an impact strategy for pretending to care about the environment, but really not, right? Or a firm. Um, and one great example of it is the Canadian banks, okay? The Canadian banks are some of the highest ESG scoring companies in the world. Um, they have many ESG products. Um, they're also the largest bankers of previously Arctic oil and oil sands data. So some folks would say that, you know, their firm, you know, there, there's greenwashing at, at a firm level going on there. Um, it, you know, and it could be the product itself. 
um, you know, making excuses to to keep companies in or, or not. It, it's kind of the whole mess of consumer and consumer perception as to what's being put out there and um, by investment firms related to products. So there you have it, this idea of greenwashing, gaming the system, uh, claiming that basically every idea and entity is green or environmentally friendly, uh, pretending to care about the environment in effect uh, when certain organizations do not. Uh, I thought that uh, Liz Simi was just great here. Uh, and she's just really smart and compelling and intriguing on this. And the thing that I thought that she said that was most interesting was that this term greenwashing uh, is the term that the end customers say, the folks on the buy side who are actually uh, accumulating positions in these securities. Uh, really interesting that that is something that you know the, the buyers of this on the buy side are thinking about. Yeah, ESG has become such a popular and big product. You know, I just finished uh, an MBA and we were just berated with the ESG topic. And this interview was such a breath of fresh air because it was just it was just rainbows and it's all good, you know, but it's nice to hear somebody from an inside perspective talk about, okay, there's stuff that's that's really good and then there's stuff that needs to happen. And there's there's, you know, like things like policy changes that she mentions throughout the interview, which is really important. Um, so, yeah, uh, Weston, I know you were actually talking a little bit about how how much of an opportunity ESG might be in Japan uh, from even an activist front. Do you want to quickly – we were talking about it before, but what were your yeah. thoughts on that? Um, maybe I didn't mean to portray it as an opportunity, um, as in it's there's fruit and there's a lot of it, but it's not necessarily low-hanging because um, it is uh, very tough to break into. Um, so – Activist campaigns have been hitting record highs um, because Japan has horrendous gover um, governance. Uh, this third arrow of Abenomics that never basically you know went off. But the, at the core of the problem really is that unlike the U.S. and Europe, where uh, executives are compensated in their company's stock, Japanese investors are not, or Japanese uh, uh, corporates are not. So they don't care uh, re regarding ESG or, or whatever, whatever it may be. So if yeah. they have a metric that ties their ESG score to directly their net worth, like they do in the United States and Europe, then they're going to care. But they're yeah. not going to they're not going to care here. Um, but but it gives an opening for yeah activist investors to step in. Uh, they just need to take a look at the shareholder base. If they can sway them. Good for them. Yeah, there's so many ways that you could do that. I, I I've seen a lot of companies do what are called carbon adjusted EPS where they basically reduce the amount of um, of uh, emissions that they're doing on a nominal basis and then create a new EPS for that and that's how they get uh, some kind of score in for that and you know I think for a company like Nesty or something that's okay but when like Exxon Mobil and I hope I don't have a black car following me for the next month after I say this but <laughs> if, like why does why 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 do you do ESG for an oil company, you know, it's, it's stuff like that is, is bewildering to me. But you know, it is, it is, it is a very. I mean, there's trillions of assets on the ESG space, and um, you're rewarding shareholders on that front uh, when, when you when you try to be ESG friendly and you get those flows and you get you know governance, et cetera. So there's a big incentive from upper management to to push towards the ESG space, but sometimes it's not warranted. You know, that's why I love that interview. It's just it's just a straight look at you know the whole industry. Yeah, Peter, speaking of rainbows and sunshine, you should have known that Weston was going to be super optimistic on Japan. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, 100%. No, I said, I said there's opportunity. You know. That's true. He did use the word opportunity. I, yeah. I think that, that may be the most optimistic thing I've ever heard him say <laughs> on this show.
That's true. That's so listen, guys, let's jump in. We've got a bunch of questions coming to us right now. By the way, you can uh, answer your you can ask your questions on the Real Vision platform. Uh, you can ask them in the YouTube chat, or you can just tweet them directly to me at Ash Bennington uh, on Twitter. So we're running a little bit low on time, guys. Do you want to just do a speed round here? Do you want to see if we can get in a bunch of these questions? All right, let's do it. The first one comes to us from Trevor813. Boy, this is the perfect question uh, coming up to uh, the Jackson Hole Symposium. And the question is this. Is liquidity the ultimate end-all, be-all, replacing true fundamental price discovery mechanics with monetary policy? Do you ever see monetary policy not holding as much weight on financial markets? I mean, yes and no. Yeah, yes and no. I, I'll go quick. I think monetary policy is most of the time, the big monetary policy is always reactive to prices, right? You saw that all the time after a crash, after a pandemic, whatever. Uh, Weston, go ahead. Just yes or no. Yeah, yes, yes. I believe that whether it's there or not, the perception is there. Then it, be, it becomes a reality. Uh, no, I don't think that they'll remove it anytime um, that uh, anytime soon. Sorry about that. I think we got a little bit of echo there. I think it's fixed now. Uh, next question, Edmund Johnson. Uh, what are markets expecting from Jackson Hole, and which realistic uh, announcement would move the markets? Guys, what do you think? Uh, hawkish. Uh, talk would potentially move markets, um, and continued dovish talk would not. The Bank of Korea hiked rates today, by the way, um, and people are now starting to think, "Oh, well, Bank of Korea did it, so they're, you know, good for Bank of Korea." But um, I don't, I don't see the 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 rest of them following on, you know, off the heels of them. So, hey, Weston, presumably down. Although there are always those who say that withdrawing liquidity will have an accelerating effect on on a rally. Um, but what's the realistic scenario that you see in terms of uh, percentage change, short term and long term? Percentage change of S and P five hundred equity market levels in the U S. Um, I I I think that you get under 10% pullbacks that are very swift and recover within a day or two. Um, and the, the longer term or midterm trend is to, is to the upside. Um, if, there, if you ever get lucky and you get a 30% crash, you just send market orders and go long. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, you have to align your money with those who are in power and um, the generation that's in power, and that is the baby boomer generation. Um, that they are going to move goalposts any way they can. So just just play that game. It's not, it's well, not that's, that's such an interesting way of phrasing it. Cynical, but kind of brilliant. Yeah, it's, I mean it's it's just the reality, right? So yeah, yeah. Hey, here's one uh, that comes to us from uh, Phil Johnson. Uh, given current levels, do you see the golden elevator going up, down, or sideways in the near term? Either one of you, just jump in. Before we answer that, what's the golden elevator? Sorry. I haven't faintest idea. I was hoping that you would elucidate it for me. And by the way, I should add, golden elevator is in quotes in the question. I Googled it. There's something that you just don't want to see in uh, an urban dictionary. I don't know what it means in financial terms. I assume that the implication here is uh, that monetary policy is, is artificially stimulating uh, the Fed. Does it have anything to do with gold at all? Or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? I don't know why. They, they may be talking. They also, another question might be okay, let me re ask the question. Yeah. What is the impact on gold prices uh, if, the, uh, if the Fed uh, continues with accommodative policy? I think with accommodative policy, you probably see the trend we've seen over the last two months gold prices down, um, yield, yields down as well. And uh, with hawkish policy and 
if inflation isn't transitory, gold is just going to soar, probably. I think it's a little too early to um, to just be super confident about one way or the other. But as soon as you, I mean, like the trend is down right now. Medium term trend is down. Doesn't look like it's going to change. But if you get tapering with you know the the hawkish Fed into slower growth, above average inflation. Uh, and yields fall as well, you're going to see gold fly probably. And I'm one of the most biggest perma bears on gold ever too. So that's me saying that. <laughs> Weston, any thoughts on gold? Yeah. So um, y- your your favorite movie, Ash, Trading Places, um, when he first kind of loses home and he's very like, you know, he's used to this opulent lifestyle and suddenly he's on the streets, he doesn't know what to do. That's where gold is right now. Gold has no idea what it's doing. Gold doesn't know if to follow, you know, uh, real yields negative, if, you know, follow this or that. So it needs to find its place. I think that there are central banks that are dumping gold holdings right now, um, which is why, what's distorting markets. But eventually, what's his name? Winthorpe or whatever his name is. He'll, he'll Lewis find Winthorpe. His, yeah, he'll find his way. Uh, but right now, gold is a lost dog. Yeah, I agree. Guys, we've run over time once again, as we usually do when it's the three of us. A great conversation. Final thoughts. First to you, Weston. Um, by the dip. That's a good way of putting it. I would say, you know, probably just it's not I don't think it's it's the time to be super confident about long term. You know, I'm always kind of speculating on a three to six month time horizon. And I think it's one of the hardest times to just have that opinion because there's just so many different variables and it's, it's not clear what what the outcome is. And I couldn't imagine as an allocator right now having to deploy whatever it is, billions of dollars, whatever a pension might do uh, for a directional view of markets. It just seems very, very tough. I, so. Uh, so, okay, so I, I do have a serious answer um, very, very quickly. My view, is, my view is as follows. When bad things happen in the world, um, equity markets around the world will have their flows move into the U.S. begrudgingly. So the U.S. is going to be the beneficiary of international and domestic turmoil uh, maybe not that day, maybe that day. Um, at the same time, you're also going to, so that means Europe, uh, like short Europe, long United States. Um, so it happened to Japan, happened to, uh, to, to China, Europe's next. At the same time, you're getting the frothy flow of the millennial Robinhood crowd. That's moving into crypto. Uh, and so the meme trade is now shifting to crypto. Um, and that is going to, however, be replaced by these international flows from real, uh, you know, real money, long only asset managers. That's my, that's my real view. And yeah, this just in from the YouTube comments. Edison Lane tells us golden elevator means prices only go up. Wow, I like that term, by the way. Golden yeah. Elevator. By the way, final word here. We're giving to Joe C. Joe C. says, "I call my parents commies all the time. I do my part." <laughs> that must Thank be you, Joe. <laughs> Weston, Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for watching, everyone, and thank you for the questions. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.